This is Joe Cole, and you're listening to the London is Blue podcast. All right, Chelsea fans, welcome back to another episode. That's right, of the London is Blue podcast. Hopefully, your favorite Chelsea podcast out there, wherever you happen to be enjoying podcasts at the moment. Dan, one of your hosts here, no Nick or Brandon, but that's because it's a little bit of a Sam and Dan special. And you know what? There's no match to preview because it's during international break. And so we put our heads together and decided we wanted to get back to doing some player deep dive, some player analysis on an individual level. We had done one of these before with Jorginho and tried to answer some questions about his fit into Chelsea at the time, what was right about him in terms of the things people would say, what were people incorrect about in terms of their observations about the player, and tried to really net out on what do they bring to the side? And we've selected another player this time, Sam. And he's a player on a lot of people's minds. And I think as Peter Drury put it on the commentary, City's boy is Chelsea's man. That's right. It is a deep dive on Cole Palmer, the recent call-up to the England senior side that we want to chat about today. Yeah, absolutely. I, I remember you and I discussing about who we should do a fact or fiction on and uh, both of us settled on Conor Gallagher for good reason because he's been absolutely stupendous as well. But um, just the penalties that he's been scoring, the contribution, just how incredibly amazing he looks uh, on the pitch, uh, it just forced us to pivot a little bit and say, you know what, he's been called up to the England senior squad. Um, give him his flowers. I think we should definitely discuss him before, um, you know, other people tap into it. And, and we definitely think that there's a lot to be discussed because this is just the tip of the iceberg, to be very honest, based on uh, the games that I've seen before at Manchester City. Um, I think there's a lot of it to suggest that there are parts of his game we haven't seen as yet either. So hopefully, fingers crossed, he continues to be better. And uh, yeah, we're just celebrating a young talent coming to our club at a time when we need them the most. So super excited to do this. Yeah, not only celebrating a, a young player who's getting their opportunity to play for Chelsea. Again, we've only seen 595 minutes in the league from Cole Palmer so far. So unlike other players maybe who've been progressing up through Cobham, who've been on the radar previously, or we've seen or had an opportunity to see more footage, there's still an unknown factor to Cole Palmer, which is why we're doing this. So we're going to get a little into his backstory about how he got into this point, how he got to Chelsea, some of the plaudits that he earned while he was at Manchester City and in Manchester City's developmental squad, the move to Chelsea, how it's gone so far, and then a ton of listener questions. Un, you know, wanting to understand from a perspective of what is fact and what is fiction with Cole Palmer. So we got a ton that we're going to get into. Before we want to do that, we just want to say thank you to everybody who supports the podcast. Five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Always appreciate it, particularly, you know, you're going to be in holiday gatherings, potentially, with friends, families, loved ones this year. Maybe they need a podcast to listen to. Maybe they need a podcast to review. Maybe they just have an account on Apple, and you can grab their phone for five seconds and leave a five-star review. We would appreciate it. You can also support the podcast by going to YouTube. You can subscribe and hit the bell icon to get notified when we drop new videos over there. Leave comments. Let us know. We're getting very, very close to 30,000 followers slash subscribers there and we super appreciate it and you can go to discord and the link is in the description join our wonderful community there to learn a little bit more about what we're up to and engage in some of the wonderful conversation 
And last but not least, you should also sign up to the CFC Dispatch or the Chelsea uh, London's Blue Dispatch that we do. And that is written by Sam, who had another absolute banger this week. He's like Cole Palmer on the penalties. The man don't miss with the writing that he does. And so, uh, yeah, do that for Sam, you know, first and foremost. Yeah, Cole Palmer with the pen and CFC Central with the pen. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's... Oh! Uh... <laughs> Hello. Oh, yeah. Well, with that in mind, why don't we talk about the story, Mr. Author, and why don't you walk us through the bit of the maybe hero's journey that Cole Palmer has been on on his way to getting to Chelsea? Mm -hmm, absolutely. But before I begin, Dan, I think there's a philosophical message that I want to send to everybody out there. Um, you know, sometimes the universe gives you a bad experience, but it always balances it out with good ones. So I've I've heard of this place called Withenshaw um, because that's the place where Anthony Taylor was born. So for the longest time, you know, I was like, I associated it with bad energy. But uh, Cole Palmer also comes from Withenshaw. And uh, suddenly the balance of the universe has been restored. And then good things have come from, from a place that I have not been to, but have... Um, had a little of nefarious energy in my mind for so hopefully that um you know dissipates in time and and hopefully i'll have good things to say about it so yeah comes from manchester is um, a manchester boy um and he basically is of kittian descent so his uh dad comes from saint kitts in the caribbean um he joined the city u8 and then he's basically progressed through the ranks very quickly uh before eventually captaining the under 18s uh it's an interesting point here because midway through that journey, even though it was a meteoric rise for him, he was almost released a few years ago when he was at the end of his U16 season. And it had to be an intervention from Jason Wilcox, who was an academy director then. And he basically intervened and said that, you know, no, we, we, he's one of those players that we definitely need to keep in the academy. And just before Pep Guardiola came, because we have to remember when he was playing for Manchester City, Guardiola wasn't even at City. Uh, Palmer himself was concerned that um, physically he was not up to it. He was always the smallest player um, throughout his time from the junior ranks up to the U18s. And he thought that it was going to basically hamper him when he went on to senior football. But his dad said, look, Pep Guardiola has been heavily linked. It's almost done. And he's never going to prioritize anything above technical quality, which obviously you have in spades. So don't worry about it. Make sure that you continue working on the fundamentals and you should be good to go. His coaches at Manchester City at this point in time, according to a lovely article in The Athletic, um, basically say that he's shy. He's extremely level-headed though. And, and he's sort of this character who still hangs around with his, uh, with his friends from school. And his parents are a very, very key influence because they've provided him with a very calm, very nurturing environment, which has been very beneficial for him. And uh, I think that's contributed to the player that he's become. He helped City win the U18 Premier League Cup in the 1920 season, and he scored in that final against us. So, uh, again, we've seen these little moments in the past where a player's done very well against us and eventually comes to join us. So, I think there's a nice, poignant. Uh, little, you know, universe guides you in the right direction sort of thing for us. Um, but yeah, I should I should highlight that from this point onwards, he basically played in the U23 season, so which is the Premier League 2 season. And uh, in the 2021 season, he played 16 games and he managed an astonishing 13 goals and 6 assists. 
The season after that is when he started basically getting a little bit of look in into the senior side, but he still managed to play eight. He scored eight and assisted four. Now, at this point in time, when he was being slowly bedded in into training sessions with Guardiola's senior side, it's apparently David Silva and Kevin De Bruyne who helped him, um, guided him, and both of them helped him with the tactical aspect of playing as a number eight in Guardiola's um, side. So they were instrumental, and uh, Kyle Walker apparently was also a pretty big influence in the dressing room who helped him out in those initial days. Now, when this article was written uh, by The Athletic, 25 days post, he made his debut for City on the 30th of, on the 30th of September in 2020 against Burnley in the fourth round of the EFL Cup. And he would have to wait nearly a year to score his first senior goal in a 6-1 win against Wickham in another EFL tie. So uh, one year of wait before he scored his goal. On the 16th of October in 2021, he came on as a stoppage time substitute against Burnley in the league. And then hours later, he went and played a game uh, for the elite development squad against Leicester and scored a hat-trick. Um, two days after that, he basically backed his first Champions League goal in a 5-1 win over Club Bruges. And then he started in the UEFA Super Cup for City in Sevilla uh, versus Sevilla and then scored City's equaliser before they went on to win the game on penalties. This summer, he's... Basically, he was uh, part of the U21 uh, Euro winning squad uh, for England alongside Noni and uh, Colville. And first game of the new season, he came on as a sub for Haaland in the Community Shield versus Arsenal and then went on to score again. Uh, he's then moved on to us, fortunately, for a 47 million euro fee, which a lot of people were raising eyebrows at saying, wow, you know, he's not even made consistent starts. But, you know, how are you? How are you sort of? paying that much money for him you know just to put it into context he's already managed twice the starts uh, for Chelsea that he managed for City over two seasons so it's it's pretty interesting that that was debated about and in September post Chelsea move he basically captained the U21s in a 9-1 win over Serbia so it's been up and down again he's had some challenges he's he's basically been through a lot but it's also been very very quick you know I think he's it's very apparent that when he hits a setback, he bounces back very quickly. And how? And I think uh, that's been very apparent in in the initial impressions we have for him as a player. Yeah, it's interesting to look back in preparation for this episode at the reaction, particularly from City fans at the time the Palmer move was announced. And in general, there was sentiment that people were disappointed that he was leaving that they thought he would actually, many comments suggested that they thought he would get more game time at City this year than he would get at Chelsea, which I think on current trajectory definitely would not have been the case. But again, we have the benefit of hindsight in this moment. People pointing out the fact that there were photos of the David Silva with the young Cole Palmer and how the thought about him having or having any type of performance up to the level of David Silva over his time or tenure in world football and as a professional would be something very painful to lose on. There are people saying that first, maybe not the first best you know academy player, but maybe the second or third player in the academy that City has ever produced. People saying that they thought he would come on to be a star for us. People saying that they were happy with the amount that they got from almost similar to things that we have said as Chelsea supporters when we have a talented youngster 
who doesn't necessarily feel like they have an opportunity to make it here. Again, whether or not we agree with that, you know, in a like Lewis Hall type of situation is maybe a little kind of different, but where the player doesn't feel like they have the opportunity, supporters like the player, but are also aware of the business and the way that it works, that, you know, millions, tens of millions of pounds for a player is a hard thing to say no to. And you also have to kind of keep the player interest in mind that they might want to leave and have an opportunity as much as you might value them. And so I think that thought has changed. Um, now they look at Cole and what he's done and De Bruyne being out on extended injury. And who knows, maybe he would have gotten more opportunity this season at City with the way things that have played out. But you can't argue with the fact that at least at this moment in time, Chelsea feel like they have gotten the better part of the deal, whereas City, even with the dollars, might be missing someone like Cole in this exact moment. Yeah, I would like to add two things here. One is if there's something that I have grown increasingly convinced of is the fact that you do not bet against Joe Shields. Uh, when this guy oh. picks out a player, yeah, when this guy picks out a player, I, I sort of like follow his Instagram stories. I I have uh, stalked who he's following on Instagram as well. You know, apologies, Joe, if you're listening in. But just to figure out like his grip on, on players and, and the ones that he sort of goes after, the ones that we're linked with in public, Osman Dioman, Lenny Yoro, um, all these guys who I've, I've watched last season, he tends to pick out, uh, you know, the absolute creme de la creme. And in, in ways that, I think he's he zones onto them very early and and he tends to do a very very good job. Uh, I I know that on this spot I I've been a pretty vocal critic of the Lavia deal, the amount of money we paid for him. We did this before he joined, and I said like you know it might not work out. Injury issues, lock jam in midfield. Don't know if he's good enough defensively. But the only reason I would say one of the major reasons why I have faith in this deal is because of Joe Shields. And and the moment he said. You know, moment we knew that Palmer was coming here, I knew who was who was spearheading that deal and, and where it was coming from. And that gave me a lot of peace of mind to sit back and say, okay, we know what we're doing. And and there is a person who has a pretty good information about what this player is capable of, who he is as a person, and then what he's capable of doing or, or what his ceiling is. And that's what has sort of like been my barometer in those early days. And I think I would attribute it to the fantastic I that Joe Shields has. So so that would be the first point. And the second, like you said, I think it was opportunity meets, you know, the window of, of like our transfer guys saying, look, there is a player here. We've got our first two choice central attacking midfielders out in, in Kunku and Chukwameka. Who do we want to go? Who is not just going to be, you know, a liability once those two guys come back, but actually go on to challenge both of them um, in, in making that role his and, that's where it happened. When you talk about um, an opportunity for Manchester City to say, okay, Kevin De Bruyne is out. Uh, they sold Riyad Mahrez also. That's exactly what Pep said. And, you know, his convincing point to Cole Palmer then is something that he mentioned pre the Chelsea City game um, in his conference. He said, Cole arrived and accepted some processes. And then after one or two years said, I don't want to play here. I told him Riyad Mahrez is leaving. You're going to get a chance here. And he said, no. I'm not going to play here and I want to leave. So I said, okay, leave. And that's what Pep does. He's done this to multiple players. The moment he feels like that, you know, uh, commitment is not there, that you want to go and you're, you're, you've got one foot out of the door, he just says, 
you know, just leave. And he says he got what he wanted. It is good for him. He's a young player, huge talent. Otherwise, he would not have been here. He's a nice lad and it is good to see that he's doing really well. So I think that that just came together for, for us. I think that opportunity was there for, for all of us to exploit. And, and I think initial uh, assessment is that it was um, brilliantly done on our part to recognize that he could be the player um, if given the time to, to shine on the pitch. That makes complete sense. And I, I know that Cole Palmer also had a chance to get his perspective out into the media, particularly around the city match, given that, of course, he was going to be a focal point of the conversation, given the recent move from Manchester to London. And he had to say, I was thinking about it for a couple of days, every minute of the day. I didn't know what to do. It was a really tough decision. And I thought for my career, I had to go and get regular game time. The competition that was at City, the players that were there, the players that were going to try to sign. So I wasn't sure I looked at the Chelsea squad and thought, if I could go, if I go there and know what I can do and then have the chance of playing, I will have the chance of playing. Thankfully, it's happened. And that, I think, speaks to the type of player who is comfortable shrugging off the penalty in a heated moment in a absolutely crazy Premier League match between Manchester City and Chelsea ready for the moment, ready to know who he is, know his worth, know his ability to compete. And also, I think the difference between where Chelsea were at and our Chelsea are still at in flux under new manager for the 100th time in the past 18 months, it feels like, and under new ownership where a city are very stable and it's very much a addition of one addition, a minus of two, an addition of one, very strategic squad building in the sense that they're not doing tons of overhaul the way that Chelsea are right now. And so I think I can understand Cole Palmer's perspective that he shared here, Sam. And ultimately, it leads me to the fact that like we, we got someone who bet on himself to be able to make it into this side and is reaping the benefits of that self-belief. I think we're seeing something similar to what happened to us with regards to certain talents as well. Um, I think the player he was referencing here is Jeremy Doku because um, I felt that Cole Palmer himself saw him uh, like the opportunity for him to be very linear. If Kevin De Bruyne is out, you know, if if Bernardo Silva, for example, was ill, I think, on the day of the Super Cup, and that's why Palmer got the start. And he went on to score in that game. And I think he was really, really good. I saw the entire game twice. And and the amount of stuff that he was showcasing on and off the ball, I, I think should have convinced the hierarchy to say, you know, you've got a really good player on that right-hand side. So maybe you should be, you know, hedging your bet there. But you also look at Pep's perspective that you see a talent and, and you identify that there's a window to get him. And obviously you could make him better. And, and Jeremy Doku in terms of, Dribbling, I would say, is one of the the best dribblers anywhere in the world. So um, I think City just said, okay, we need to stock up like we always do. And that just went on to to backfire. And and Palmer just said, look, not going to happen. I think they expected him to stay post-Maris because um, they expected him to do something what, what Phil Foden did. He accepted a bench role, said, look, at 2021, I'm just going to ease myself. And... You know, learn as much as I can until I'm trusted to take on that responsibility. But Palmer, like you said, I think has this great perception about where he is and where he wants to be. 
And he references in an interview that he spoke to uh, Mauricio Pochettino on the phone. He knew that the manager has a great track record of improving players, younger players. He also spoke to Sterling and I, I think that convinced him of the vision. So yeah, young squad is learning. Saw himself taking as many starts, uh, you know, probably twice as many starts as he would get at Manchester City's Pep Roulet or rotation. And yeah, I think uh, he he does not think. I mean, he himself says that he's convinced that it was the right decision to make. Well, we appreciate it. And again, we appreciate the gifts too, in addition to a little bit, as Nick would call it, shithousery of jumping into the city huddle and having to have Erling Holland push him out. Though it seemed as if that Erling Holland thought it was funnier than the rest of the group in that exact moment. But look, we want to get into how his performances have looked so far, talk a little bit about the on the pitch not just the antics but also the performances and then get into all of your wonderful listener questions we're gonna take our last break and when we get back we're gonna get into all that so stay tuned all right so sam on general he's got some really good stats that we want to go through i think you cherry picked a couple here that you thought were not just great in terms of his individual performance but just in the fact that in top five in the top five in europe he actually has some pretty impressive elements there that are not just you know individually in the Premier League, but actually in European football are really, really worth looking into. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, these were just numbers. It's a very small sample size, but again, I think we signed him on a very small sample size as well. So if you look at the numbers here, I think it's fair to make an assumption that these stats will be a good reflection of the performances that he will provide in the coming days and weeks and hopefully years. So four penalties obviously converted is the highest in the Premier League. It is also second in Europe's top five leagues. Now his expected assisted goals per 90 minutes stands at 0.44 and that's third in the Premier League and seventh in Europe's top five leagues. He's also got 21 passes into the penalty area, which is eighth in the Premier League. And it's important to consider that this is not per 90 minutes. Um, This is the overall tally, which means that you know, we are not factoring in the fact that he missed, I think, three games. And then he's also made sub-appearances in, in those minutes. Like you said, I think 500-something minutes. So he's obviously missed out on, on a bigger bounty. And uh, passes into the penalty area, minimum 450 minutes of all the players in Europe's top five leagues. Uh, he stands at ninth, which is a pretty, pretty good number to be at. And obviously eight through balls. I think uh, some people not not some, but I think everybody's noticed that um, he's he's quite adept at playing these incisive balls from the right-hand side pocket to overlapping fullbacks or to Raheem Sterling running on to, to lose balls. And, and I think um, that eight through balls metric uh, is, is a pretty great number for the amount of uh, games that he's played. It puts him fifth in the Premier League and ninth in Europe's top five league. So... Uh, an accurate, I think, assessment of where his strengths are. Obviously, the penalties have got us some really good points. Uh, he's creating a lot of chances for for players around him. Uh, he's also very incisive when it comes to getting the ball into the dangerous parts of the field. And uh, yeah, I think uh, it just highlights his, his strongest skill set as a whole. So, yeah, I think when you look at some of those things, it gets pretty exciting when you look at how he's just 
slotted in and kind of contributed. You know, he's definitely in the top five as relates to shot creating actions for Chelsea behind Sterling Fernandez, Gallagher and Jackson, not too far behind. He's at 29 in total on the 33 of Jackson and the 39 of Cole Gallagher. When you flip that to per 90, however, he does lead the side for shot creating actions per 90. That's right. Ahead of Enzo Fernandez at 4.39. And I guess based upon what you've seen, the way that he plays, Sam, I guess I'm not surprised by that because I, I do think we've seen a little bit of uh, a dip in form at times from, from Enzo, you know, obviously is a uh, you know, proud papa and has had some pretty long international travels as it relates to his games that he has to go to during a break. But also I think we're seeing uh, Cole, you know, necessarily in attack. You you should have people, you know, in the, the shot creating actions per 90 should be your attackers. <laughs> uh, it shouldn't necessarily be your midfielders. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, you you want somebody in your attack, like I, I mentioned this term quite a bit, you know, you need an unifier in attack. You wouldn't have um, a very good fully functional attack if somebody wasn't pulling the strings and actively looking to find players in the right spaces at the right time. And I think that's Palmer's biggest asset. He not just has the technical ability to pull difficult passes, but he also has a temporal understanding. He understands at what time to release it um, which is the optimal moment to find that player in a position where he can take a touch and then finish it uh, in a you know compulsive way. So when you have that kind of a player who's able to make the most out of a front line of Raheem Sterling, hopefully Christopher Nkunku, and hopefully an improving Nicholas Jackson, or an upgraded centre forward like Victor Osman or whoever that that name is, then you look and say, okay, then you've got one player in the attacking line who's constantly looking to feed the others and. I think Palmer has cemented his place purely on the merit of that. You know, that he's the most uh, decisive influence in terms of improving everybody around him. So out of his performances so far, I mean, he has gotten a couple of man of the match trophies from the Premier League for his performances. What would you say his best match has been? Very strangely, I would probably say it was it was Manchester City. And this would probably stand even without the penalty that he scored to equalize the game. What I really liked about that performance was you saw him in difficult circumstances, mentally, physically, and you saw what he was offering even when he did not get the ball as much as he wanted to. He was constantly tracking back, dropping, making sure that Reese James did not have to deal 1v1 with Jeremy Doku or whoever that runner was on, on that flank. And there was this selfless industry, this constant determination to make sure that nothing went down his side. I think he he prides himself on not making mistakes and then making sure that he's got everything on his flank locked down. And I think that's fantastic to see from a player of his age. So just to see what he was like without the ball, just to see the application, the understanding, I think these are all things that Pep consciously drills into your head as a player because you have to be completely multifaceted. You have to be thorough with your tactical plans when you have the ball and when you don't. And and you already see that in spades in Palmer. So I would say City was 100% the best performance and that penalty at the end was the cherry on top. It was the cherry on top, that's for certain. I may have a different view of it and I'd like to get your thoughts on this. I actually feel like the most complete performance was the Tottenham match. And I know there's a lot of 
what about with the Tottenham match? Oh, what about the fact it was against nine players? Or what about the fact that, you know, Tottenham were playing absolutely crazy and weren't necessarily doing anything to play an actual game of football or try to win the game? Um, however, there was a goal, there was an assist. It was done with less touches, um, you know, than some of the other performances that he's had where he's been able to to manage some of that. You know, I thought that was good to see. He also got involved from like a a tackle and interception perspective that I thought was really nice. Um, Did create less kind of like shot creating actions, but had the kind of goal creating action, which comes from the assist. And so I I liked seeing that element of his game. I mean, you could argue uh, that he uh, is owed more assists. Uh, I, I feel like that's a conversation we've had around a lot of players at Chelsea before. But, you know, to me, it felt like a very complete performance as well. And, and maybe we're splitting hairs here because he's just that good so quick or he slotted in that quick in a couple of really big games and has maybe the institutional pedigree from his time as a, as a bit of a youth champion or uh, progressing in his time at city to know what it means to play the teams at the higher level who demand the respect of the performance you put out on the pitch. Yeah. I mean, it was a very good performance, 100%, but me being the stickler for, for certain details. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I've just uh, gone with certain things. Like I, I think he struggled in that initial spell and, and not because of any mistake of his. I think it was just tactically um, what Spurs basically did was they kept pulling their fullbacks in. So essentially it forced Palmer to mark two guys at the same time. He had to make sure the ball did not go in, but he also had to make sure the ball did not go directly to Brennan Johnson and and, and allow him to go 1v1 with three chains, which happened uh, in the first two instances. Uh, and, and James Madison, if you remember, was uh, basically he dropped to Palmer's side, collected the ball and shifted it to the other side. So I would say those three instances in the first 15 minutes sure. were, you know, just moments where he could have done better. But obviously you're looking at the system of it and saying, wow, that was tough to to play against. But you also knew and you had to be prepared because you knew that Spurs do that every single game. So um, those I think that was a great learning experience for him. Um, And I didn't basically mark that as the best performance because of the first reason that you said. It was against um, a decreasing amount of Spurs players. So more space, uh, more time to basically pick out. I was extremely impressed with the way that he reads the press, the way that he intercepts, the way that he anticipates where the ball is going. Um, I think that's been a, a refreshingly super part of his game. I think that's something that I did not see um, a lot but I think at senior level, it's it's been fantastic to see. But just 11 against 11 in a game of that magnitude against probably the best team in the world, he did everything that he could and, and left his heart on the pitch. And I think that's been the, the, you know, the trumping factor for me. All right. Very fair. We'd love to hear your thoughts. So make sure to leave it in the comments on YouTube or tweet at us, leave an Instagram comment, DM, all that fun stuff. Or talk about it in Discord, too. It'd be a great way to think about what you thought Cole Palmer's best performance was. But we got to get into the questions, Sam. We got a lot of questions from the audience. I think the first bracket, so we had questions from Sidhan and also Orlando, just really asking about the ceiling, the realistic ceiling that we would place on Cole Palmer based upon where he is at today. There's also some thoughts on like the ideal position where we try to slot the individual in on the pitch. But I like to focus particularly on the ceiling part. What is his, the 
he's a really, really good player for us between now and the end of the season, or he's a really, really great player, player of the season for us this season, what does he need to do for those two benchmarks? So the really good benchmark or the really, really great, outstanding benchmark? Yeah, I think when we're talking about a standout strength, before we even talk about what he does well on the pitch, I would love to highlight the mental aspect of it. I think his resilience is arguably his you know, the best thing that he could hold on to at this point in time. I was reading this interview in The Guardian and he says that, you know, when I saw the ref give the penalty in stoppage time against Manchester City, I said, this is my time. You know, how how many young players who are playing against, you know, who've played against their old club and obviously they've left it, it would have been easier to be there, comfortable you know, get the occasional start, grow under one of the best managers in the world. But to come away from that in a pressure cooker situation, when the rain is basically lashing your face, you're one goal down in in the death minutes and, and you know that missing could be catastrophic. You feel like this is your moment to, to grab it. And I, that just, you know, hits you how he sees the game. I think he's very, very focused. He's got incredible amount of self-assurance. And it shows in the way, I think it translates to everything he does on the ball. He's just so confident when he has it. He looks like he knows he's not going to lose it no matter what you do. So I think his resilience is just his mental fortitude is arguably his biggest strength. I know that it's not tangible. You can't measure it. You can't say that statistically this is what the number is. But I would say that based on things that I've seen, I would... I would say that he's there. Even when talking about the penalty, you know, he was asked like, did you feel nervous? Or what was the feeling like? And he said, no, you know, not really. I don't think so. I, to be honest, I wasn't. I felt like I was waiting for a long time, but I did think about my club and stuff. And then after that, not really. And just went on and hit it past Edison like, um, like nothing happened. He also said that in the game against Burnley, if you remember that, um, acrimonious clip of Sterling basically wanting the penalty and Enzo had to interfere and then basically a lot of debate around that. So Palmer basically said, you know, on that particular day, he was not the designated penalty taker. And uh, all he did was he looked at Sterling and Sterling said, fine, you know, and then he took the ball and he scored. So it's just that assurance that, you know, you know a senior player is arguably the designated penalty taker more established. He's also your peer, your senior peer from your old club. Holds a lot of sway in the dressing room, but just look him in the eye and say, I need this. I want this. Shows a lot about his leadership, about uh, you know how he wants to play the game. And I think that's his, his standout strength. If I mean, I think everybody knows what his standout strengths are. If you look at um, just his on-pitch performances, it's Something that Jason Wilcox, uh, the person I mentioned, the, the person who actually made sure that he was not released from the academy. He's gone from academy director to now being uh, director of football at Southampton. And he said that, look, I'm not surprised he's done well very quickly at Chelsea. He's a quiet, languid guy and people can misinterpret that. But you could always see elite vision, technical ability and winning mentality. And I would I would perfectly agree with that and say those are the three qualities that basically, you know, put him over any youth player that that we could have signed in that position. So how does that then establish what you think a good end of the season for Cole Palmer would be and a great season to the 
and for Cole Palmer, what would they look like? Based on his age and based on the fact that this is his first senior season, I would basically say that he needs to get 20 to 25 starts in the league mm-hmm. and definitely get a flavor of the other competitions. I'm not going to say he needs to score double-digit goals. He needs to score these many assists or something. No, I don't think that's a that's a fair barometer. And then even though he's doing extremely well, what I would want, and I'm pretty sure Poch is going to tell him, compete when Nkunku is back, when we've got other injured players back. Make sure you're competing. Make sure you earn every single one of those 25 starts, 25, 30 yeah. starts of a 30-year season. Cement your place there, you know, and show us what you can do. And the numbers will come. You're staying in the side because you're contributing as an attacker, which means the goals and assists are going to come. And the idea is, how can you do that? How can you make Nkunku better? You know, how can you make somebody like a Nico Jackson better? Somebody who's also, you know, playing in arguably his first senior season as the starting center forward for the Premier League side. So how are you making those guys better? That's the question that Pochettino needs to ask. Not how in terms of quantity, but in terms of quality. And I think a good season would be getting a very healthy number of starts and also making the kind of contributions that he has. He just needs to continue it. And a great season would be arguably with the numbers. Obviously, you look at it and say, wow, he got 10 goals. And, you know, the kind of numbers that he was pulling at PL2 would be quite ideal for us. But uh, I would say just getting those number of starts, being a quality player would be a great season. I, I wouldn't look at the numbers. I think it's a really great shout because when you think about it, if he's earning the starts, the underlying stats are going to be good. And they're going to be what we would expect from him as a player because as Nkunku comes back healthy, as other players come into the side, Pochettino will have tough decisions to make. And if Cole is slotting himself into an undroppable position you would have to argue or you would assume that these stats are in line with really, really strong performances. So I do think that that is a great metric to use. And I think maybe the only other one I would add in terms of what you'd like to see from a really, really good season or a really, really great season for Cole Palmer is some level of high involvement in winning one of the cups that Chelsea are in contention for at least this season. Again, I do think... Newcastle looks pretty prime to be taken advantage of here. Again, I could be made to eat those words in about a month's time, but who knows? Maybe Chelsea advance in the Carabao Cup, and it does feel like it's anybody's game. And Cole Palmer could be a big decider in that tournament over the next couple of matches. So I, I do think there's an opportunity with that type of mentality that we talked about. If he is a hero on the day, in any of those cup matches, particularly leading to a final or winning a final, that would be another big intangible that he could claim as a part of the success this season. Mm-hmm. I think silverware is obviously the benchmark at Chelsea. So from a collective perspective, I would say that responsibility has to be everybody's, you know, from Pochettino down to everybody saying that, look, you know, the circumstances are ripe for us to go and make a really good charge for the Carabao Cup and then get at least one trophy in, in the first season. And I think that's enough to to basically assure that there's more time for this for this process. I, I don't want to use the word because I know people are allergic to it by now, but whatever is happening here in terms of developing the squad and making it into a, a CL competing, title-challenging squad, you know, you need the silverware, you need to basically show that you can compete in those high-octane games. And and obviously, it's not just Palmer's prerogative here, but 
everybody else as well. But if that happens, yeah, absolutely. For him to feature and star in one of those would be would be the icing on the top of the cherry. Wow, on top of the cherry, it's a, it's the leftover sprinkle that you've been uh, or the uh, the hot fudge has been drizzled over the Sunday. Oh, yeah. But look. We had other questions, Ali, Gabby, uh, uh, Ernstein, others, uh, Chris, uh, Gabriel asking, what are the things that Cole Palmer can improve on? You know, we've, we just spent a little bit of time talking about how good Cole Palmer is, how great he could be, just how determined he is, but he's not perfect. He's not the perfect article yet, and he has an opportunity to grow and improve in the way that he plays. So if you're Pochettino, what are some of the things that you're circling for an opportunity for young Cole Palmer to address over those starts that he does earn? Um, well, I think I, I wouldn't say that there's a weakness as per, but I would say that he has to improve certain um, execution aspects of, of what he's good at. Something that struck me and, and has been highlighted by a lot of people who watched Palmer is that his shooting and his technique is fantastic. He's a supremely good long-range shooter um, from different angles on the right-hand side or from the center. And, you know, he can be a very good long-range threat, provided he's given enough ample opportunities to do it. The problem is that, you know, he tends to take shots from, from I would say, unoptimal distances, like his... Um, short distances, average short distance this season is 25.4 yards. That's that's out of the box and, you know, six yards beyond. And and he's basically got one in every four shots that he's taken on target. So uh, it's not like he's accumulating expected goals for fun from that range, especially with the technique that he has. And I think what he needs to do is make a conscious attempt to utilize that from closer range. He has to make sure that he's taking shots in certain, you know, circumstances for sure. If, for example, you know, there's a offensive set piece and and he has the opportunity to hit something on the volley, by all means, even if you're 20 yards out, do it. But when you're in possession, when you're in settled possession, when when you're getting the ball in the right spaces, has to make sure that he's taking it from from better positions and he's making the most of it. But right now, he's he's not doing that. And I think if he learns to tweak that a little bit, even if he improves it with a minuscule amount, I think we will see great returns because he's that good at shooting. So I think he has to definitely improve on that. The second point is a little related to the first because there have been opportunities in in a lot of games that I've seen him play where the ideal option would be to play somebody in, but he decides to go for the shot or he decides to basically do something else. So his decision-making, I would say, is above average at this point in time, especially when he's given the time and space to to pick passes, but I I think that his decision sort of like decision making process, his final product can improve if he wants to be in the same bracket as Assess Fabregas and Juan Mata, um, guys who we hold as you know the gold standard of creators at Chelsea. Then that's exactly what he has to harness. He has to decide exactly when the pass needs to go and when it does not need to go and and when the shot needs to happen and when it does not need to happen. And right now, I think that's, I can attribute it to maybe being in a new team, um, you know, getting to grips with new players, what runs and everything. I can, I can 100% factor that in. So maybe that improves with time, but uh, I'm looking at that to sort of be a little better. And the two other aspects I would say is his weaker foot. He, he tends not to use it 
very often with short passes, yes. Um, touches and creating sort of like little spaces and openings for himself, okay. But um, no shots. Um, deliveries tend to be very one-footed. So I think for him to become a more complete player, absolutely. I think he needs to figure out if he can hone his right foot. Um, there's a really good podcast that uh, the Chelsea Spot did with Saul Saxonhurst, mm-hmm. who's uh, somebody who works as a consultant. You know, he basically uh, works with Premier League players. He's worked with Noni Madueke on his shooting drills, making sure that he's improving his right foot, his weaker foot with shooting. And he said, like, you know, I think it's it's a fundamental thing. I think younger players have to improve um, the weaker foot as well because. You're just, you know, why not work on something that gives you a wider range of success? I think that has to be something that he can work on. His passing with his right foot, his um, his level of ambipedalness or ambidextricity. Yeah, he has to has to basically work on that. It just looks like he's he's very good at doing what he does with his left foot. I mean, no one's going to tell Aryan Robin to do the same thing with his right foot, right? But I think that when you do have the opportunity and you have a 20, 21-year-old who can who has no ceiling, you can basically push him as high as he can go, then why not? You know, you can definitely tell him to work on that. So I think that's something that I would earmark. And the last thing I would say is probably strength. I think he still has to get to grips with consistent, I think, level change from U23's football to senior football. I think um, he's a unique player in terms of like, when you look at him, he's a winger or in and a wide attacker, but he's also six feet, two inches tall. You know, he's got a very rangy frame. He's very lanky. So sometimes uh, contact can put him off, especially from central defenders. And and if he wants to play a, a false nine role, which I'm pretty sure he will play in certain games, uh, down the years, down the line, maybe this season, who knows. But uh, I think if he wants to play that role, if he wants to make sure that he's going to take other aspects of his play up. Like, I think he's got great box movement. Um, We've not seen it for us because he's, he's playing in a different role. He's playing in a different position, but I think he's got great runs um, inside the box. And if he wants to make the most of it, then obviously he has to be stronger when going in for challenges. So I think upping his strength will also be good. I would highly recommend seeing his goal uh, against Sevilla. If you haven't seen it in the super cup, uh, basically runs on the blind side and then heads it at the far post while shouting at Haaland to leave the ball. So good header, but static position. Um, so those things, I think it has to do more. It has to just keep practicing, doing more. He's six feet two, you know, he's tall. Why not improve your your jump? Why not improve um, how you can attack the box when you're not with the ball? I think those things are questions that if I'm Pochettino, I'm asking him saying, why aren't you improving those aspects? You know, what's holding you back? So there are a couple other questions that merged in. I'm going to merge into a combined, which talks about the role in the side, asking, are we going to see him as a 10 or a right winger? You mentioned a little bit around the false nine or the 10. And we also have people asking about like, hey, we've seen the Instagram post with Nkunku looking like he's getting ready to come back. But does what does that mean for when he comes back and Cole Palmer's spot? I think the only thing I would offer is that competition is absolutely the best thing possible for Christopher and Kunku, for Cole Palmer, and for all of Chelsea. And I don't think any of these decisions are in isolation, but in the thought about building the best side to attack within the Premier League. And I think there could be a lot of fluidity 
in who gets an opportunity to start and who plays. We know that we uh, have players who have been out for a significant period of time, and you might have someone like Nkunku who's going to be given an opportunity to work himself back in. There might be considerations that maybe a midfielder gets sacrificed at times to add a fourth attacker onto the pitch. And so I don't think it's as static as the moment Nkunku comes back, it's Palmer who's under jeopardy. But I do think there are people who ask that question, and they're right to ask the question about what does the makeup or how is he impacted by and when Pochettino has a full lineup of fit players available to him. Yeah, that's a, a tremendously hard question to answer at this point in time. I would say that let's let's address the first part of the question, saying what is the long-term position, the role? Knut and teams both ask this question. So I would say that, you know, he, he's a, a, a forward who basically can play across the front line. I think he can play as a left winger, which he's done for Manchester City. He can play centrally, which he's done for us in the Arsenal game. Where he was moving positions. And then he can also play as the right winger, which is his natural position. Obviously, you see some aspects of his play in each position. Like, for example, his crossing, which is very good from the left-hand side. His cutbacks, which are very good from the left-hand side. Even his 1v1, like how often he likes getting 1v1 with players. This is not something that you see as often on the right-hand side, where the temptation is to shift the defender's body weight to the byline and then basically cut in on your stronger foot and try to play it into the center or basically pick out a pass behind the last line. I think on the left-hand side, he's more, how can I get the ball on someone's forehead? And um, I think that's something that we see on one side, but not on the other. So I would say if you're looking at his long-term position, it would probably be on the right-hand side. I would I would keep him there. I think his natural position, his strength, um, or to him being perfect in that role. And it also sort of goes very well with how Reese James plays. I think when you look at Reese, very comfortable going to the byline, crossing crossing from wide positions, also very comfortable underlapping, hitting that edge of the box and going for cutbacks, or maybe being even further inside looking for shooting opportunities, which he does so well inside the box. And then you've got Palmer, who's very comfortable being a touchline winger. He's He's happy to have chalk on his boots and get the ball there and draw players out before finding spaces. But he's also very comfortable when he's drifting into the half space zones. I wouldn't want him in the center purely because um, I feel like when you keep a player in the number 10 position, then there's a lot of pressure to to sort of like be away from the defensive midfielder. So if you're giving him that amount of freedom, the kind of freedom that Enzo Fernandez got at number 10, then yeah, I think there's definitely a case to be made. But uh, I also think that in that 8-10 role, uh, it doesn't suit his work out of possession where I would say that he's a little weak when it comes to to engaging in in like duels when it comes to ground duels when it comes to aerial duels he's still not there when I'm talking about strength and how well he compares physically in 50-50 duels could improve so I wouldn't really put him in that position Kani Chukumeka is physically very very good as is Nkunku Mm-hmm. And obviously, Gallup, you you do not even talk about because he will he will basically run you over. You know, he doesn't care. So when you're looking at those three physical tanks uh, in that position versus Palmer, who's a slightly different profile, I think a more, you know, technically dominant profile, then I would say then try to give him the assurance of being in your strongest position and work from there. So I think that's the first part of the answer. And the second, when you talk about how does the team look when Nkunku is fit, Look, in a very utopian universe, Dan, I would say that a 
Pep Guardiola like approach where you're rotating players and you're ensuring that the same amount of injury worries that haven't hit us don't hit us again. You look at Manchester City and and I think they have three injuries, four injuries. Kevin De Bruyne being a major one along with John Stones. Everybody else is fit. You know, I don't think they've had more than five injuries at a time. And I think that's a big point that Pep Guardiola prioritizes. He wants to give them rest, uh, even if his players hate it. You know, he just wants to rotate it, involve his entire squad, make sure that everybody knows they have a role to play. A lot of players don't like it, but as a squad, it helps you. So I think in an, in an ideal world, if you could rotate Mikhailo Mudrik, if you could rotate Raheem Sterling, um, and then you could figure out Palmer on the right-hand side, rotating with, say, somebody like Anani Madueke, if he becomes good enough to do so, and Nkunku Jackson maybe finding different roles to play in the centre-forward position, then, I, then I'd say there's space for a lot of people. You've got Gallagher, you've got Kani Chukwumeka, who can play that number 10 role, that 8-10 role. So I think there's in an ideal world, you would like to rotate them and give everybody a chance. But like you said, if it comes to being a consistent 11, then I think hard choices will have to be made. I don't think you drop Gallagher uh, on, on this run of form, um, on the kind of performances that he's shown consistently. I don't think you can drop him. So um, you can't drop Sterling also. Like, how do you drop him? So maybe Nkunku um, as center forward, then what happens to Jackson? So I think those are hard questions. Those are definitely difficult questions for Poch to envision. But I would say, if you're looking at it, then it's Nkunku on the left-hand side, uh, Palmer on the right, and uh, you've got Jackson up front. Or you move Nkunku as the centre-forward. Um, you've got on the left-hand side, Raheem Sterling and Palmer on the right-hand side. I think one of those two becomes the template. I don't know I don't know what happens if you drop Gallagher. I think it, it shuts um, the balance off. I think it throws us off in terms of our pressing, in terms of our counter-pressing. In terms of just how many balls we've won in the middle third, uh, in the attacking third, because of him, because of his incredible tactical understanding of when to press, how to press, how aggressive to be, uh, losing that, I think, just takes a lot away from, from the collective unit. So it will be a massive headache for Pochettino. This is not an easy decision. I could give you five different lineups and all of them could be true. But like I said, the ideal decision would probably be to go on a game-to-game basis and figure out on which games you want to throw Mikhailo Mudrik in, which games you want to take some kind of fatigue away from Raheem Sterling. Um, how do you want to play with a centre-forward? Do you want somebody who's pinning the line back, or do you want somebody who's just dropping deep, like in Kunku, and then playing between lines? Um, yeah, that's that's probably going to be the hardest question for me, for Pochettino in the coming months. Well, maybe more of a snap decision question we can answer as we round out into the last one or two questions of this episode. Ryan asking, look, when Nkunka comes back, who sticks on penalties? Like, would you give it to Nkunku? Would you allow Palmer to continue being the guy? And I feel like it's a hot hand situation, at least in my perspective, Sam. Like, right now, Cole Palmer is perfect on penalties. And so until the point that he is not perfect on penalties, knock on wood, you let him take them while he's on the pitch. But I know that there's an argument for letting other attackers get an opportunity in there, but I don't know. I'm, I'm let, let him ride. Um, interesting because I think in Kunku's penalties are slightly predictable. Um, he Ooh. tends to go to the keeper's right, bottom right. Very often. I think nine of his last 10 penalties, um, he's gone uh, maybe eight or seven times to to that position. And 
the only time he's gone the other side he's missed so if you're looking at a very unpredictable penalty taker who's basically placing it maybe factoring in the goalkeeper's intention reading the body language then i would say palmer is the better choice but then you're looking at Nkunku because obviously you want to boost your striker's ego, give them the kind of goal count they want. I don't think Palmer's worried too much about how many how many he's scoring. I think he's more obsessed about how much he's creating, which will matter more to him. But I could be wrong because he just looks like a guy who wants everything, which is fantastic for us. But that's going to be the debate. I don't think it's about who's the better penalty taker. I think Palmer is. But I think in terms of do you want to give the most senior player the rights to take it? I think it'll be in Kung Fu. Ooh, all right. We'll let people also leave an answer in the comments there. We had Ricardo and Sashit asking who who he is more similar to in terms of a player comp, asking about Juan Mata or Di Maria and Poch's comments uh, about where Palmer is or Poch thinking that it is more Di Maria. Um, I guess, what's your thought on a player comp for a good or great version of Cole Palmer? Yeah, I think a great comp would obviously be Juan Mata. I don't think he's Di Maria. Obviously, both of them in terms of body size, in terms of yeah. um, you know, how they move, they look very similar. But Di Maria was was different. I, I think he's um, got a lot more in terms of his 1v1 ability, his, his ability to burn people with speed, which I don't think Palmer necessarily relies on. He's more agile. He more relies on how Mitoma sort of takes on players. He waits for you to lose your balance and then explodes past. So I think that's something that Palmer does. Di Maria was just purely demonic at Benfica and Real. He just ran at you and then he pulled off the kind of like, you know, travelers and passes into space. He was very, very good. It's not a bad comp at all. I think it's it's a great comp and does Palmer a lot of, you know, good to be compared to a player like him. And I think Juan Mata is somebody who's better. Somebody who relied a lot on craft, on ingenuity, on interpretation of space and basically like trying to find the pass at the right time. So maybe Mata is there. Um, I also think David Silva is probably the great sort of interpretation of where he could go. Sure. Um, you know, I, it just the elegance with which he moves. I think Palmer's ability to basically understand where the pressure is coming from, to throw people off with feints. He's not the quickest. David Silva, you wouldn't see, you know, winning a foot race against a defender or something like that. It was just skill and craft. And I think that's what defines Palmer very, very well. So maybe David Silva or Juan Mata would be would be great comparisons. And then the last question to round it out, and this is more, again, the benefit of hindsight from Iron Beagle asking, every article written after the end of the summer transfer window listed Palmer as one of the worst or most baffling summer transfers across the Premier League. Where would you rank it now, both in Chelsea's summer and the Premier League as a whole? Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty great question to, I think, end the episode. Um, I did say something about Joe Shields, but and, and I think a good parallel for Joe Shields would be Uni Kalafat, who's uh, Real Madrid's chief scout. And I think what Kalafat has done really well is he's gone to South America and he's identified talents who might not have had enough senior experience, but he's plucked them early at 16, at 17 and said, look, come to Real Madrid at 18. We will give you the belief you need and you're going to be world beaters. And I think what Joe Shields has done with Palmer is just that. You know, you've looked at a small sample size, a guy who's yet to make appearances at a in a spotlight where everybody's eyes are suddenly on you. He's gone one league down and said, the little we've seen of you, we love. I know you as a person. I know what you're going to achieve. So come here. And I think doing the business for a, a fee that 
is similar to what Real played uh, paid for Rodrigo for Vinicius and all those younger talents. I think it sort of like gives you a good understanding of how good that signing could be. I think it was a smart bet. I think it was a it looked to the outsider as a very very risky bet, but obviously to the insider it looks like a you know why aren't we doing this in the first place? So I think it it's a it's a very good bet to make. And it's still early days and there will definitely be ups and downs, you know. Um, he's already picked up three yellow cards. So there will be times when maybe he's, his discipline gets in the way and he gets suspended. You know, there will be injuries and stuff. And there's, it's a fact of life. But, you know, how he picks himself up over a, a sustained period of time is definitely going to be a definitive verdict of how good he's going to turn out to be. But on the basis of what we've seen just now, delighted i don't think we could have picked out anybody better you know paying a 90 million for florian words versus getting this guy for 47 um i think uh, you know I'm, I'm super happy i'm super super happy seeing a player of his caliber come to us and show that he's ready for the senior level and the big time so better best transfer second best transfer third best transfer that chelsea made this window Ooh, wow um I think it's super hard. I think it depends upon what you're evaluating because mm-hmm. Nico Jackson is now, you know, leading or at least finding a way to add the goal volume that we were looking for. You had Nkunku who technically joined in we this window. We haven't yeah. even seen him. So hard to rank where he, where he sort of fits in terms of this thing. But on, on the basis of what we've seen, probably first or second, you know, one of those yeah. two for sure. I think. Yeah, I think he's he's been Kaiser is still sort of getting to grips with life. So um yeah, I would say he's he's arguably been the best signing we've made this summer. All right. Well, that is a a good way to think about it. And in Premier League as a whole, I think, you know, that probably is a harder question to answer. Mm, yeah, I think he he would definitely figure among the best. I don't know if he would be the best. This would require sort of deeper introspection on my part. But in terms of the signings that we've seen across, I, I'm 100% sure he's definitely in the top five based on the showings that we've seen. Better, better than Tonali at Newcastle? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know how much it makes me fume. It makes me absolutely fume. I, I, You know, I remember, Dan, specifically this moment when I put out this tweet. I, I was at the airport going through immigration and I was going to Europe on the 1st of September. And I basically typed out saying, even considering selling Gallagher for 45 million is the most brain dead thing you can do, you know, at this point in the season. People were saying 45 million, you know, I would, I would, that's, I would take that. And I said, loose change. And everybody's like, 45 million is loose change. I said, Tonali went for 60. The guy is, I mean, you could pick out 80 midfielders from League One who are better and who offer something better. So I, I you know, people kept, piling on on me I said Gallagher is going to be better easily better he's he's going to be 80 90 million worth I think he's easily worth that so so yeah absolutely Tonali I mean let's not even go there I mean I yeah. hope he comes back stronger after his, his ban and, and all the love to him but uh, yeah not even close I think Palmer's definitely top three top three well, easy uh, th- thanks for thanks for jumping on the joke I really appreciate it and uh, that <laughs> That probably sets the stage for Gallagher being the next episode for us to get into because of all the praise we put on his name at the tail end of this episode. But this special, this little fact of fiction, this little deep dive on Cole Palmer is done. It's over. Uh, Look, people loved our conversation about video games last time, so we stuck a little at the end after the credits roll on this one too for you as well. So stay tuned if that's of interest to you. But if that's not, 
We will see you on one of the many Chelsea-centric podcasts that will be dropping over the next couple of days to keep you occupied during the international break. But this is going to do it for this one. So until next time, Chelsea fans, you know what to do. Keep your blue flag flying high. So, which are three, Sam? Last we spoke, you had put about one to two hours into it. So, mm-hmm. where are we at now? How how are you are in Geralt faring at the moment? Uh, doing pretty well, to be honest. I uh, like we were talking before we pressed the record button. I actually felt sick a couple of days ago. So, um, you know, when when I am in one of those moods, but I don't want to work or can't work, then you know, I turned to Witcher 3 and I thought like I'm going to burn my time and and not focus a lot on watching games so I actually like put in a decent amount of time by by gamer okay. standards and yeah and now I'm I'm up to you know the point where I can safely say that I can play the game at a decent difficulty without getting my butt handed to me on a silver platter alright so not from a, a spoiler perspective even though Witcher 3 is you know, I guess when did it release officially? It's been a while. It's been quite some time since Witcher Three came out. But what? Yeah, what? What are you enjoying, or what are you finding that you're liking at the moment in terms of the the actual game? Um, well, I think I've sort of like been um, an obsessive fanatic for open world games. Um, I tend to be you know as a as a writer and a and a poet first like i love immersive experiences so one of my favorite games like i think mentioned on the last little sneak peek that we offered to our audiences bonus content was that i really loved the elder scrolls because just how immersive it was for me and and i was able to just you know lose myself in that world fallout new vegas was was sort of like also that game for me i really really liked it because it was you know post apocalyptic world and it's something different i think witcher 3 also does that for me it's it's sort of like set in a really lovely uh time in terms of like the scenery in terms of just how different the world was and the fun part is i visited maribor um you know in slovenia which is one of the places where the witcher 3 is based so it was fun to see you know the castle and the architecture being very similar to what i saw when i went there so um you know, poetic parallels. I think I've enjoyed uh, the atmosphere. Um, obviously, the gaming elements in terms of combat and stuff are, are really fun too. Not stuff that I've I've played around with a lot, but um, in terms of the story, in terms of how how realistic it looks, in terms of just how much detail there is, really, really enjoying it. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and it'll be interesting <laughs> to hear how that view changes over time. So. I think last we spoke, I said so beaten Starfield, at least, you know, run through it and completed it once to uh, completion. I have also beaten Spider-Man 2 uh, for PlayStation 5. So, Whoa. That, yeah. <laughs> you are uh, a pro, my friends. Uh, I don't know if I would call myself a pro, though. Back in the day, <laughs> I did do plenty of writing and reviews slash previews about video games so i i do have at least some comfort with them i will say Spider-Man 2 was definitely a very very fun uh, linear game so i think the way that it uh and also maybe like uh as i as i get ready for my move to new york city it was a great way to get uh, re-familiarize myself with the layout of the city <laughs> considering how well how good of a job they do mapping it 
I, mm-hmm. I do love, I think the story this time was really good. The way they integrated, uh, miles and Peter's stories together, particularly with like the evolution of miles as a character since, you know, he's come onto the scene and particularly like this fact that the bridge game was the miles Morales view and how they, how they allow you to interchange really well between the two Spider-Men mm-hmm. were, was really well done. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was a, a good game. I think people who don't love Venom or the symbiote storylines probably will not enjoy parts of the game. I thought it had a really fun take on uh, a couple of different villains. Uh, I don't want to say too many because I don't want to spoil for people who haven't watched anything and like to be surprised. But yeah, overall, I thought it was uh, it was a really good game. Uh, you know, they, they did release the, uh, the video game awards, uh, you know, top uh top games for of the year and uh spider-man 2 did make it in in that list along with a few others um i don't necessarily know if uh how many we will say that we have played at the uh at that point <laughs> but uh so the list is Baldur's gate 3 alan wake 2 spider-man 2 uh, zelda Mario Wonder and Resident Evil 4. Uh, I have a personal mm-hmm. opinion about uh, playing remakes. I, I've heard good things about the Resident Evil 4 remake, but it's a remake and I don't necessarily like, you know, care to jump in. Uh, I have also, since beating Spider Man 2, I've started Ellen Wake 2, but I, I will reserve thoughts on that until I've played more of it. I'm probably like three hours in and uh, could give much more uh, comprehensive thoughts on, on Spider Man 2. But it's been a good year for gaming, it's been a really good year for gaming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Alan Week was one of those games that I played, you know, back in college. So um really liked it. I've been waiting for this one for a long time. So it's just um a lot of my work away from football demands that I keep reading. So as a rule, a general rule of thumb, I tend to finish or try to finish a book every minimum four or five days. It's just when I start gaming a little bit and that quantity goes up, you know, the guilt factor kicks in saying, you're not working hard enough, you know, go back to reading. But uh, I mean, I sort of like supplemented that by again going through the Witcher books, reading a little bit of the lore and then immersing myself. And my brain just said, okay, that works. You know, go for it. <laughs> so hopefully if, if I can find a game that has like books written on it or has like a lot of lore that I can dive into, happy to do so and happy to go through your recommendations there as well. All right. Well, we'll have to keep that in mind as we get into... Yeah, we record these before we actually record the actual pod, but it ends up at the back end of it. So I hope that uh, for those who stayed and listened, they enjoyed a little bit more game talk from Sam and myself, but we'll try to get more of that in on the next pod we do together. And yeah, thanks for listening to that part of it. So we'll see you soon.